Hamish Ridland joins us to present a player who joined Camberwell and Minky and played all through the ranks to State League One. A player who then moved into coaching and was involved in a couple of controversial hockey stories in the early days. Welcome to the Camberwell Hockey Podcast. It's a great pleasure to be joined by Phil Merriman. You hear about these controversial stories, and you'll also hear how Phil has worked repeatedly to develop playing culture and success while coaching. You'll hear how he was instrumental in establishing the Jesse Foster Cup, played each year between Tem and Camberwell to highlight men's mental health. And you'll hear all about his move into AFL strength and conditioning, working at Hawthorne and Melbourne football clubs with some great thoughts on hockey training and recovery. Before throwing to the guys, I'd like to add that you're listening to episode 30, which is the last in series one. We'll be taking a break over the summer period, but we'll be continuing to record and produce content, and we'll be back with series two in the new year. Thank you to all our guests, hosts, and listeners over season one, and thanks to the Backroom Comms team, including Sarah Britton HP, for all the work over the year. Here's Mish. All right, welcome to another edition of the Campbell Hockey Club podcast. This week, I'd like to welcome Phil Merriman. Welcome, Phil. G'day, Mish. How are you going? Good. Quick introduction to Phil for some of you who may or may not know him. He grew up down the road uh, from Matlock, just in Marden Street, played a lot of hockey in juniors, all the way from Minky, all the way through the junior ranks, played through the seniors into State League One, and we were just musing about his summer vet's career of one game. Um Coached a lot of uh, Victorian rep sides and uh, Premier League teams of Thames and Powerhouse. And yeah, and then from a career perspective, which is of interest to a lot of people, is that yeah, he worked in high performance at Hawthorne Football Club and, and now currently in the head of strength and conditioning at the Melbourne Football Club. So, we, yeah, we, 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 we both grew up at Campwell. We had a lot of things in common. Both our father's name were Peter, they're both entomologists. You don't get too many. <laughs> People you know, the dad's playing entomologist, but uh, we also spent a lot of time down at Motlock, Matlock Park over a weekend. Give us, um, how, how did you get down to Campbell and what got you into playing hockey? Yeah, well, I still don't know what entomologist means, but um, <laughs> yeah, our, our fathers are plant doctors and anyone who knows them, they're on the, uh, the weird side of our old men. So um, what, uh, what got me into playing hockey? Well, uh, the first house I lived in was Brinsley Road, which is on the other side of Prospect Hill Road, and um, my mum and dad are both English, and they didn't like the look of AFL, so they got my brother, who was six years older than me, uh, into playing playing hockey, and then that was pretty much the, my pathway and avenue into into Camberwell. Um, I moved to Marden Street, as you mentioned, at uh, around five years old. Um, yep. Which, if if anyone doesn't know Marden Street, um, it's about a tennis ball uh, hit with a hockey hockey stick um, distance. I've done it and I've got it oh. over the fence. Um, uh, that's about how far away it was. My backyard was um, pretty much backed onto those. Uh, are, they, are those apartments still there? Those little townhouses on the corner? Of- yeah, they're still there. Would have been would have been cinders, red cinders back then. If you hit yep, tennis balls yep. over there. Yep. And I think um, I think my first memory was up at Waddle. Wattle Park. Yep. Probably about 15 kids trying to dig a hockey ball out of a mud patch up there. <laughs> um, and then there's also a memory there of Minky at Camberwell High. 
Um, Ron and Phillips sort of, and Mikey Phillips. Yep, yep. Um, and then I sort of, yeah, around under nines, I think we got graduated into the the, the Matlock Park. Um, had Lee Lee Pitt as my, my first coach. Um, son was with Gareth and Andrew and Jason. Yeah, I played with um, Jason, yeah. Yeah, so that, that was sort of my introduction to the hockey club. Um, very different back in those days, but um, a lot of fond memories. You used to frequent the sort of the halftime scumball games, which is for oh, those yeah. who don't uh, remember, so that's, that was when uh, there was a break in play either for halftime or the uh, change of game, and everyone would jump the fence with their sticks and grab the tennis ball. And uh, can you just... For the for the listeners, just go recount some of the rules of scumball. Yeah, they they were on it. They were the days. So um, it was uh, during the uh, oh, probably the late eighties, early nineties when um, yeah, we had a pretty, late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, pretty good. Um, uh, probably carried on for ten years. I reckon we had some generations of of scumballers, um, and we would sort of be watching the game, um, the state league game going on with all the superstars running around. But as soon as that halftime whistle went, it was on for one and old, and we'd be jumping the fence from all angles. One person would have the um, the tennis ball, and he'd launch it as high as he could in the air, and then it was no rules. Get the no ball rules. in the back of the net. And if you got the ball in the back of the net, you were the goalkeeper, and you could do whatever you liked. And it was um, – oh, there was – there was hospital trips after yep. some of those half times. There was, I remember my brother got a stick to the head and he ended up in hospital. Um, I think I got split open around my shin. It was, um, but that was part of the game. And maybe, maybe that toughened us up. Maybe it didn't, but um, that was probably one of the things that I look forward to most during a state state league one game. <laughs> it was great times. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I just got a sort of a near perforated eardrum from Evan. I think, but yeah, it was yeah. Dan yeah, Miles, so they like, they're all down Evan, there, were they? Gavin Newnham was always pretty mean. He was. He would have. Evan Newnham would have been pretty close to the first generation of scumballs, I reckon. Would that be fair to say? Fair and to that, say it was Luke. He's Luke probably, um, probably ten years older than me. So, and I probably played it for about ten years. So, it might have even been twenty years of, of scumball. It's a shame yeah. it's uh, disappeared, but it's probably fair enough, I reckon. It's a lost art, I think. Yeah, yeah. And so, who did you play your juniors growing up with? Because there's a few of your sort of scumball crew would uh, you yeah, play a lot of hockey with. Yeah, so, um, look, once juniors was over, pretty much m- most of my age group disappeared. But the, the crew that was around was um, uh, Peter Robson. Um, Robbo was, was around back then. He was a year older than me. He was sort of the elite junior that everyone aspired to be at Campbell around my age. Um, and then guys like Paulie Miles um, was, a, was a year above me. And then through my age group, it was um, uh, Ant Phillips, uh, Lockie Natoli. He was, he was my age. He was yeah. a superstar. Um, he, was, he was in my age group. A guy called Ed Knowles was around back then, Andy Day. They were the sort of the, the crew that was um, – that was around my age group, yeah. I've forgotten about Andy Day. I think I actually broke Andy Day's nose playing scumball. Actually. Yeah, he, he was he was probably one that went head first as well. He was a bit of a madman, so that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, oh, poor old Andy. Yeah, I think I broke his nose. 
Um, <laughs> and so you, you went to Campbell Grammar up the road and, you know, that there's been a long tradition between sort of the, the Campbell Hockey Club and Campbell Grammar. So, yeah, there's that Ian Poyser and Stuart Webster yeah. connection. They were teachers of yours. Yep. Yeah, no, it was um... – it's funny that it was a it was such a strong connection, but it wasn't. Um, I don't know how hard um, Poise drove it. We certainly got a lot of players from the school um, that had started playing hockey at the school and decided to join a hockey club. Um, but as far as the you know the I guess the elite um, players, they they probably started at at the hockey club and just by chance ended up at Campbell Grammar. And yeah, Ian Poise was um, he was a big he was a big man to get. Um, players across and Stewie Webster as well. Um, Stewie being the coach of the the first eleven and Poise was the uh, I think he was the master of sport and PE teacher at, at the school as well. So he was very good at um, bringing um, players in at the school who weren't, weren't necessarily interested in playing footy and um, getting him started in, in hockey. And we had a we had a really successful. Um, period at Camwell Grammar. I think they're going through a lot of success even still, but there was a time there, I think we won 21 state AGSB titles, which started around your age group, which is which was my brother, who mm. finished in 1993. I think they won the first one, and it, and it carried on until 2013. And I was actually part yeah. of that year that um, didn't get their chocolates. I think it was in 2013. Oh, I'm not sure when it was actually. Um, no, I think we missed out on one um, in in uh, 1998, and then it carried on through to 2013. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a dynasty, um, but it's 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 a very well known school, Camwell Grammar, for their hockey program. Um, so, very grateful that I was I was able to. My parents were able to fork out the the money for me to go to that school. I've got a lot of connections. I guess the other one as well is Andy Lee, who was my age group at school and came through the, the juniors at Camberwell as well. So there's another one that, that, that um, the thing about the, the, the Camberwell grammar connection, it was interesting to me to think about looking back on it. And we never really produced a lot of, I guess, state players, um, but we produced a lot of really good players. Um, and, and that was probably a benefit for, for everyone because the players were able to play school and club and not, I guess, get overworked during the state periods and all that sort of stuff. So, um, but it was, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was a great connection. I'm, I'm actually not too sure if it's still as strong as it was back then. Mm. We had a few handy players from Q2 with people like Q Taggart and yep. sort of players as well, right? Yep. Absolutely, and the Besleys came across yeah. from Q. The Besleys, yeah, yeah. One, one good thing from Q, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then you you went through your juniors into seniors, and um, you sort of came up the ranks through through seniors, sort of pennant A and, and a bit of pennant B and these sort of things. Looking back on it, obviously knowing that I was doing this podcast, I'll, I'll probably start from the very beginning. It was extremely nostalgic, just thinking about my pathway and what I used to do at the hockey club. And I, I would, I would um, spend the weekends down at the hockey club by myself um, watching Metro 4 East play. Um, I don't know why I was doing it. Looking back, I just loved sitting there watching it. And occasionally I'd see, uh, I remember one one game, Danny and I were playing, uh, a, I don't know, a Metro 1 team and there was an all-in brawl. Um, and God, did I have a story to take home to mum and dad that night? That was <laughs> that was brilliant. But 
you know, you mentioned the scumball and every now and then I'd, you know, when I was in my, my teens, there'd be a, a um, you know, a Metro team that um, didn't, couldn't fill up the numbers and I immediately got the call up. I was the first one out there. already had my uniform down at the club and I was just happy to jump on. Um, but yeah, then as I got a bit, a little bit older, um, I would uh, start training um, with the with Ronnie Yates crew in the sort of Metro Two Metro One um, teams, and and that was with we used to train with Ant Phillips and Andy Day and Ed Knowles, the guys who I met, mentioned, even Lockie Natoli a little bit, um, and we were named the Mosquito Fleet. And I'm sure Ronnie used to name every generation that came through there the Mosquito Fleet, um, but uh, that that um, certainly pulled us in and we, we would all run out on the weekend with you know some metro team and have an absolute ball and that's really where I started sort of the transition from juniors to seniors um, I continued to play juniors through under nines 11s 13s 15s 17s I know that's changed now um, those age groups and mm. had a ball doing that but I think the thing that I loved the most was playing with with the bigger bigger dudes and um, trying to prove myself to the old guys, and um, that's where I got the my biggest kick out of it. And that was my transition. And then when I got a little bit older, sort of um, late, you know, sixteen, seventeen, I started playing a bit of pennant B, and I probably that was the period where I got a bit too cool for hockey, and uh, went away from it a bit. And um, you had blonde, blonde yeah. hair there for a yeah. while, didn't you? Blonde head. As soon as I went out of school, turned up to Albury with shock white hair and probably put on about 10 kilos I reckon as well and <laughs> shot, shot off to England for a year and then came back and that was around the the 2000 grand final I reckon um uh Wansley was coaching um and like I said I'd, I got back at the back end of that year and it was a bit of a decision I had to make whether I was going to play hockey and get serious and uh, there was a change of coach that year. Greg Reed took over the following year or around that time and I sort of saw that as my way in and decided to get myself in good condition and, and have a bit of a crack at it and played a, a couple of years in, in Penn and A for um, under a guy. Peebles? Yeah, it would have been Brett Peebles. Yep, and um, uh, Robbie uh, came from MCC. Rob Shepard. Yep. Um, played a couple of years there and then lucky enough around sort of 2021 I think it was I got my first call up to play state league and um, Mm. and then went on and played about five years after that so that's sort of my yeah my 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 pathway at Camberwell yeah I I guess I noticed quite a big change in yourself like you sort of yeah like you said you sort of came back from overseas and you sort of started up a university degree and was was human movement or sports science, yeah. and then you know you got a job down at Wayne Amy's gym and Visions, still a sponsor yep. of the club, and you're a yep. personal trainer there. For and obviously the the late Wayne Amy, what what was Wayne like? He was probably a bit of old school gym yeah. owner at the time. Yeah, yeah, no, he was he was a ripper, Wayne. He was. I remember Luke Kilmartin got me in there um, working at Visions, and and Luke met Luke said, look. The fact that you play at Campbell Hockey Club, Wayne will just bring you in and he'll welcome you in. He was incredibly loyal, Wayne, um, and he looked after me at the at the gym. He certainly had a, 
a streak to him that you didn't want to rock <laughs> up without a towel in the gym because he would certainly let you know about it. And you didn't want to punch the boxing bags without gloves on um, because then you'd be he'd be you'd be a punching punching bag to him. Um, um, but he was he was a good man. Um, Wayne, I loved working for him. He was a great character, um, and and he certainly loved the hockey club. Um, yeah, for a long, long time. So, and um, his his son still pon- sponsors the club to this day. Oh, brilliant, yeah. Testa- testament to that. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I think they still have the uh, the visions team in the uh, summer comp. So, which is which is lovely. Yeah. And so, it, just going back to your hockey, you sort of started in yeah, it was two thousand one, two thousand two, and you sort of probably got into the side on a week-to-week basis around in that sort of 2002 period and we were going through a bit of a generational time change like we'd sort of gone through a golden era and we'd sort of yeah it was it was time to sort of rebuild a little bit what was your experience of the team at, at that time coming yeah I mean it was an interesting time um Greg Greg Reed clearly had a plan I think in mind um and I was I was I, I was I was couldn't believe I was playing with guys like Luke Kilmartin, uh, even Benny yourself. Um, Jesse Foster was still around, I think, those yeah. at that time. And yeah. I, I was looking at these guys going, wow, I cannot believe I'm taking the field with them. And then occasionally I'd see them out of the side. They're dropped. Like I'm looking at, looking at me, what am I doing in this team? And these guys are getting dropped. But, it, look, you know, looking back on it, there was a direction that, Greg was taking. He wanted to make. He wanted to find out which of our young players could play, uh, which could, which ones be around for a long time. Um, and he was transitioning some of the older crew out of the side, clearly. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was a difficult time because there was probably um, some older players that were were unhappy with the decisions that were being made. But I was just, I just couldn't believe I was getting a game, and I was lapping it up. And as he said, I was probably in and out for the first year. Um, that was purely because I, I I didn't think I belonged there, um, mm. and yeah, we 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 were going through a big transition period. We weren't winning many games, as you know, but I guess one of the things uh, a few years later I, I took took on myself was we were a group that yeah, I think you what are you five or six years older than me, and we had mm. I guess your your generation of players, and then there was a couple of mine splattered around, but then we had this incredible underbelly of youth coming through and I sort of saw myself as a, a bit of a bridge between the, the two generations and I felt it was pretty important to to bring these young players in and make them feel at home and welcome and um, yeah. and I think I think that period between you know 2002 to 2000 and I think we played a prelim in 07 maybe or 06 um, yeah. against yeah. Hawthorne. Yeah we had a couple of Close misses against Hawthorne prelims, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, yeah, look, I, that period was was really a period where we we set up the club again to obviously have the success it's had over the last ten or twelve years. So um, every club has to go through it. Unfortunately, it was sort of in my my little window of Premier League. But I mean, I held I held no regrets. I loved my time playing in that team, mm. and I was you know it, it obviously ended early, and I didn't want it to end. At that point, because I could see some success coming around the corner, but um, unfortunately, that's the way it went. Yeah, it was a bit unfortunate for yourself in terms of yeah. Sometimes things don't go to the script because, as you say, we 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 were certainly going through a rebuilding phase, and 
it's they're always a rocky road and um we probably had more losses than wins and more hard times but i think yeah the the signs i think when you sort of started to finish we were we're at least making finals and 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 winning the odd final here and there um yeah and you you could certainly see that the there was you know um some light on the end of the horizon I guess so. It, it was your hip in the early twenties, like it, it was sort of a drag flicker's industry, in, injury. But you, you're not known for your drag flicking. But it was it, it was the fashionable injury of the, the time, yeah. was it? The, the the hip flexor. It was, um, yeah. and it sort of forced you to 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 change gears a bit, and you, you sort of made a move into coaching. Um, and what did you find going from being a player into a, a coach? And you you pretty much took a senior role straight off the bat, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. So I had to retire because of the hip injury. It was, um, yeah, it turned pretty nasty. Um, it was a Danny Brennan collision. I don't know if you remember it. It was the last round of probably two thousand and four or five that I that he collided into me and caused a whole lot of damage. And I went through a few arthroscopes and I've since had it replaced. So, it, it yeah, it was time to go in two thousand and eight, and I'd been doing um, some. Uh, my my major at university was sports coaching, so I, I had a real interest in in coaching, um, along with the the exercise science, sports science side of things. And uh, I'd coached a uh, Victorian state team, and I think I guess one of the one of the kids in that team um, probably liked me, and he he was from Thames Hockey Club, Hockey Club, and then I got a call um, from Peter Brookner, and they basically. Um, you know, earmarked a, a coaching role for me. I thought I was just going into um, interview for an assistant coaching role, and you know, I went and had the chat, and I came out as a a senior state league one coach at twenty six, um, <laughs> which which I, I'm sure at the time everyone could not believe, and I couldn't believe it either. And I'll admit, first up, I had no idea what I was doing uh, for the first two years, at least. Um, but it was, you know, I was thrown in the deep end and, and, and Peter and a guy called Craig Seckle um, backed me in and they put a lot of faith in me and, um, mm. and I, I'm forever grateful for that because it's the impact, impact the, that the coaching's had on my professional career, career has been, um, you know, quite unbelievable. You know, just, just learning how to deal with people and your soft skills and dealing with boards and all those sort of things um, mm. from an early age. It, I guess mentioned that I smartened up when I was um, around 18, 19 as a player, uh, as a person around the age of 26 when I took that role. Um, that certainly made me smarten up even more because I had to take responsibility of a, of a young playing group, playing state league yeah. one. And, and it's it's hard going from playing. I, I think uh, having done a little bit of coaching, no matter the degree of yourself, but it, it takes a while to stop playing the game. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like you – You've gone basically from one season, to, from taking the field against Thames to, to coaching a team against against Camberwell, no less either in terms of the team <laughs> and the peers that you played with. So, yeah, what was what were the biggest adjustments you had to make from going from a from a player to a coach? Yeah, well, as you said, um, I, I was playing the game, so I was running around the sideline and um, abusing opposition players as I used to do as a player, and. Um, abusing umpires and it was it was pretty embarrassing because what I did as part of sort of my professional development was get someone to film me um, and I watched it over and I could only watch probably five minutes of it and from that point um, uh, I've got a few mentors in the around the coaching industry and 
you know, I, I got certainly a lot of advice and Mike Craig and a few others had a few cryptic things to say to me. And so, so the first thing I, I needed to do was just come and make sure I knew what my role was within the team. And my role within the team wasn't to be abusing players. It was to be watching the play and um, making sure our systems were right and all that sort of stuff. But also at the same time, it was um, it was to be skilling myself up in regards to the game of hockey because I'd been a player, but I, I hadn't really analysed the game enough to um, to be making you know big calls on game day and all that sort of stuff. So what I was doing was um, I'd be obviously coaching the the game on um, with Thames, but I'd be getting around to as many state league one games as I could um, just to watch the games. Um, so I could just see things the way that different teams and keep different coaches were, were were moving and adjusting their team and 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 working with um, uh, whatever strengths and weaknesses they had. So there was that adjustment, and then there was also the adjustment in regards to um, you know how close I was to the playing group, and I sort of went the whole opposite direction. As you know, I I didn't mind a, a beer and a spa after the game, and then that carried on to a. <laughs> Uh, that carried on to a, uh, you know, it might have been a, um, uh, what was the pub in on Burke Road? What was that one called? Oh, the Palace. The Palace. Might have gone to the Palace and then maybe into the uh, Room Nightclub or one of those ones. So uh, I couldn't do that anymore. I, I just stopped myself from doing it because I, I wanted to get serious about um, coaching, but also professionally I needed to get my myself um, on the right path, if you like. Yeah, it's sort of having that separation from you, you. Sort of, it's a different. It's a different dynamic as a coach within a group of a of of yeah. As you say, you've probably had some people of similar age to you, so you sort of have to have that distance. You, yep. You're in the group, but you also have to be out of the group. That's right. And I think I think um, I've come back the other way now. And you know, coaching is all about building relationships. It was back then, and it still is. Um, and to build relationships, you can't you can't keep people at arm's length. You have to be authentic. Uh, you want your players and your staff to know who you really are, um, mm-hmm. and that's something that that, that it's, it's a big philosophy of mine um, to this day. So going out for a, you know for a beer or dinner or inviting players over for for dinner is an important part of who I am, and um, building trust with people is 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 so important. So sort of come back the other way, um, and now it's a bit more about you know. Um, enjoying each other's company but being professional when you need to yeah i think i think balance is a key word with that and i have sort of a good motto in life if you get money out from an atm on 10 p.m after 10 p.m it's probably not nothing that's good's <laughs> yeah. going to come out of that money yeah. so yeah well unfortunately <laughs> now miss you don't use an atm you just tap well, that's, don't you? <laughs> that's good, good thing i've been out of the game for a long time, yeah, long time. Yeah. exactly um <laughs> So what I guess you know, like t- talk a bit more about that first time you fronted up against Campbell because you've <laughs> you know you've you've been you know you're very much and, and a lot of your very good friends were playing yep. there. So people yep. like Lockie Gibson and yep. you know and these sort of people yep. live with him and you're yeah, probably still living with at the time. Yeah, yeah, Steve no, uh, yeah, I was. Yep, I was. I was yeah. living with Lockie and oh, you know that oh, at Thames we had um, a bunch of really young kids, um, like seriously young. We're talking fourteen to fifteen. And then we brought the in about Aaron Kleinschmidt. Aaron Kleinschmidt, yeah. And then we had some Gil- Gilmore and Jake Sharon. They were they were probably a bit later, but um, Seckles and but we also had um, a bunch of players that had come from come to us from Dandenong, who um, 
who loved uh, loved it tough. Um, Richard Hatch um, and yeah. a few others. Matty Haining, um, Costa. I can't remember his first name. McCumber. Met Steve McCumber. Um, and so our first game we played against Campbell. Obviously, I um, look Campbell had us done for talent, so I had to rev the guys up in some way. So I went down the path of private school and. Um, you know, these guys don't like it rough and, you know, you got to give it to them and every chance, you know, you just give them a bump and let them know. Latte uh, drinking, that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's right. They were just, just before the game, they were down at the local cafe and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Oh, look, look at this brand new Adidas uniform they've just put on. And <laughs> I think that was part of it. Anyway, we we started playing, I think, oh, I don't know which part, what part of the game it was in, but the ball, was, there was an overhead given, um I think from the Camberwell back line, Stevie Uncles was underneath it. This was at the hockey centre. And back in, I don't know if it's still the rule, but uh, I think it's, it's, it's always been a, uh, a fudgy rule at best. But I think it was that whichever player was underneath the ball at the top of its apex, that player deserves uh, full right to the ball. Well, Richard Hatch didn't know that. Um, and he came charging in from about 15 metres away and, he was airborne. He was probably a meter in the air, swinging his stick, and clocked uh, Stevie Uncle's fair flush on the cheekbone. I think he depressed his cheekbone, but from re- from memory. Yeah. Um, and that was uh, that was probably where I went pretty quiet on the sideline. Um, and I think the score was about five one in the end. Um, uh, Hatchie obviously, I think he went to tribunal and might have got a couple of weeks. Um, Steve still talks about it to this day. I think does he, he really hold a grudge? Yeah, yeah, yeah right, still... right. Yeah, the old war stories, eh? Hockey. Yeah, eh? I think I think I think Will got pretty fired up too. It was good to see the uncle boys. Just oh, a did little he? Bit, um, yeah, a little bit hot and sweaty. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was trying to I was trying to calm calm the farm a little bit, but I wasn't going anywhere. And yeah, no, I learned a few lessons from that on that day. Obviously, it was against my old mob, and I didn't want that to happen. And um, made sure Steve was. Okay, after the game, which he which he, he wasn't in great shape, but um, yeah, it's, I, I, it's, I don't regret anything in hockey, but I guess that was uh, that was one thing I, I probably learnt a lesson. Well, we did notice too when we played at Matlock that you guys would um, make sure you hit to the clubhouse end in the <laughs> second half. So there was we we knew that was all you. Uh, I think. Yeah, no, it was a, it was always a thing that I learnt. Yep, you always come home with the crowd when you when you can well. So, uh, interestingly, interestingly, I, I think I only played in my ten years of coaching. I reckon I only got three games out at Matlock. I, I reckon that was it. Um, and you're probably hanging to tell the team, make sure we take the clubhouse. Yeah, it took you yeah, yeah, there was two ten things, years to make get sure a game. Take the clubhouse and eat eat as much as you can after the game. That's right. Yeah. Chicken sandwiches. Yep, yep, and the sausage rolls. <laughs> um, so you, you coached that group for many years. Um, what, looking back on that group, what was, what was your proudest achievement with that group? Yeah, well, we got um, two years in. We were cellar dwellers for, for two years, and then we got relegated in the, in the third year. And like I said, I, I had no idea what I was doing as a coach. Um, and we went down to State League 2, um, and that was a – at the time, it was a really difficult pill to swallow, and and it was very tough for me personally. What we did that following year was was quite extraordinary. We we, we I think we only lost one game, and the team that we played uh, was uh, back then we were known for recruiting 
Spanish players and German players. But we just purely went with um, a bunch of young guys. This is when Will Gilmore was um, coming through the ranks and Jake Sharon and the Seckle brothers, uh, a guy called Benny Pugh. They're all really seriously talented juniors. Um, mm. And, yeah, we went we went through the season only being defeated once. We won the grand final. Um, but but what a, looking back, you know, there's always the argument of relegation, non-relegation. For me and my experience, I, I can't speak highly enough of being relegated. And it sounds mm. funny, but we, we as a club were able to take stock. We were able, able to get some good senior games into our young players. Um, build confidence. We had a real confidence boosting year, um, and I think we bounced the following year. We, I think we only we came sixth the following year after getting promoted from state league two, um, and that was a year where I learned the most about um, coaching, and I was able to really really coach with confidence and and have have um, have trust in my ability as a coach in building those relationships and actually having players that were really playing for you. So. Uh, I, I, I'm a big advocate for the relegation um, promotion uh, debate. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think you've got to have something to win, and you've got to have something to lose. And I think it, I think it just it is actually healthy. Um, yeah. But yeah, we certainly noticed a different, a different Thames outfit come. I think you, I think you even drew with us the first time you, you came back um, to our surprise. But uh, it. You know, in, in looking back, it wasn't any surprise because, yeah, as you say, you, you rattle off some of those names there. They've gone on to yeah. play AHL and um, play very, you know, very long um, careers in Premier League, at least. Um, but yeah, we did. We certainly noticed a, a much faster, fitter, more organised group that that came back up, and yeah, you yeah. sort of stayed up from then. And and you weren't just making up the numbers then. You were you were legitimately making yeah, that's right. And we, we contention were for finals. On. Yeah. Yeah. Prior to that, you know, relegation year, we were relying on um, strangers to come and uh, win us games from Spain and mm. Germany. And then after that year, we were relying on, you know, young kids, but we knew what we were getting each week. And mm. um, every now and then, you know, we'd we'd have a Spaniard pop up, or but we we I'd never I'd never think that this Spaniard was going to, you know, get us into finals. It was the group that we had that was going to eventually pull us up to to play finals, which which did end up happening. One thing at Thames too, you you were quite instrumental. You certainly played a role in in, in getting the Jesse Foster Cup going, and um, it's been playing for many years now. Um, tell us a little bit what Jesse meant to to you. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's a uh, um, there's a few I guess layers to this. When I was growing up, I used to you would remember me coming down on Friday nights watching you guys play all through juniors and I used to just being six years younger than you guys, I used to just look up in awe of all these players, but there was one guy that just blew my mind and that was Jesse. Uh, he, he would just make a mockery of players around, uh, around him. And, uh, I don't know whether I got it right or wrong, but even back in the day, I used to love the way he played because he brought everyone into the game. Correct me if I'm wrong. I could be wrongish, but no, no, he did. He was he was bigger than everybody. He was stronger than everybody. He was better looking than everybody. Yep. We all looked yep. up to Jesse. Yeah, uh, yep. yep, yep. And that was what I that was exactly what I saw. And my brother used to come home and tell me stories about Jesse and what he'd done. And uh, he was just he was just the man. And then uh, yeah, I obviously got started playing seniors and. He was a very softly spoken man. Um, I don't, I don't know whether he was humble, um, 
I, my interactions with him was that he was humble. Um, I didn't get to know him deeply. Um, I did play one or two games with him, and then he obviously took a role coaching um, Thames. Um, that was probably after he'd well, – it was certainly a couple of years after he'd sort of stepped away from playing representative hockey. I think he played a year of Redbacks, and he was in an underage Australian side from memory. Um, yeah, captain all – junior sides all the way yep. through sort of under 21s and 18s and yep. that sort of and he obviously liked to he liked the party side of things as well um jesse and he um he took the role at thames and i was pretty shattered at the time because he was my hero um he was the guy that you know yeah even even i think i know i wasn't playing but i used to, i remember there was a game where uh, Waverley, you know, it was the Burt Batch Cup, and I, I clearly remember a pushback. Waverley pushback. Timmy Thompson got the ball at centre half and just clipped it straight into Jesse's guts or in the nuts, or I can't remember. But um, seeing him get up and just, you know, th- these are the memories that I have of, of Jesse, and, and uh, I, I just, I just, I just, yeah, I was shattered when he when he left the club, and um, and I sort of lost contact with Jesse. Um, as many people did after that, um, mm. uh, he, he's coaching. I think he spent a couple of years, two or three years, at, as a playing coach at at Thames, and then he just sort of um, disappeared off the radar there. And um, unfortunately, his his mental health got the better of him, and and uh, and he's no longer with us. And that was a, actually the story behind that. Is I was playing hockey over in Ireland. I think it was in two thousand and two when he passed. Um, and I got the news um, through Johnny Nayland and it was night time over there and I just sat up all night crying and, and, and like I said, I didn't know him personally that well, but I just, I just couldn't believe he'd got, he, he was gone. Um, and um, yeah, so I, that was sort of uh, it for a, for a while and then towards the end of my career at Thames, I made contact with Jules, his brother, um, who I who I knew. I played um, in the sort of lower pennant grades with Jules, and um, he was a fiery character, Jules, and loved him as well. And I to Jules, and I just sort of floated the idea of if he was comfortable with um, me um, suggesting getting a, a Jesse Foster Cup going in, in aid of mental health, and um, obviously meant a lot to the two clubs that he was at, yeah, and. Um, and, and have a mental mental health piece um, behind it, um, so that Jules was wrapped with that. Um, made sure Matt, his old man, was 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 clean with that through Jules, and mm. and um, yeah, we were able to get it going. I think oh, the first year might have been two thousand and seven, maybe. Um, Sounds about right. And I, and I'm so glad it's still going, and it's something like I whenever hockey gets up and running, I'd like to be. Uh, getting down and being part of that again, um, but yeah, uh, it, it, it does it does mean a lot to me both in regards to Jesse. I've had my own mental health issues over the journey as well. So, um, and obviously me being at Campbell and Thames, and same with Jesse. It's just uh, it's just great to see that it's still going. Hmm. Yeah, Jesse's. I think really changed the outlook of our club um, beyond belief. That 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 moment where we sort of judged our success quite quite a lot about how many 
premierships we'd won and that sort of thing. And I think it was it was really a um, a short circuit for us to understand. There was a lot more to you know a club and connection and community um, than just the, the the number of pennants that you stuck on the wall. Now we still do pretty well on that side of the coin, but um, we certainly had to, had a lot to do as a club to to not let people f- slip through the cracks like yeah. like so Jesse Jesse did. He's a, he was a character, Jess. He loved to scrap. I've, yep. I've, so I, got, I, I, I could tell a million stories, but I've got I've got two favourite ones, and both both or well, like three favourite ones. One was we were playing a game against Hawthorne down at Thames. It was a midweek game, it's the year of two thousand, where we had to sort of squeeze a few games in for the Sydney Olympics, and we were supposed to play Hawthorne. And your mate, your friend Danny Brennan, was there and playing for Hawthorne at the time. We played a few clubs, Danny. I <laughs> uh, had a few t-shirts. Um, and we, we we had to get there pretty early because it was early start. And Jesse ate two sausage rolls before the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Wonsie went absolutely ballistic at him. Just what are you doing? This is up professionally. We, we won seven one after the game. Jesse goes, "Is it right to have a sausage roll next week?" Wonsie goes, "Yeah, of course you can." Um, the other was with the nineteen ninety eight grand final and. We were, we were going to play at Doncaster, and we, we won that. I don't know how we won that game, but we won that game. And we, we used to always, yeah, we used to always meet at uh, Wansey's house in at Hyatt Street in Richmond there before yep. the game. And uh, me, I was with Ben Ryan in the car, and then Luke Kilmart stuck his head out of his car. We were going in convoy, and we thought he said, don't go Royal Parade, or go Royal Parade, but he said, don't go Royal Parade because the show was on. So we were stuck, gridlocked down that one lane of Royal Parade. We could yep. see the hockey centre, but the car wasn't moving and we were just stressing out. We got changed in the car. It was like 15 minutes before the game was supposed to start and Jesse was behind us. And Jesse, you could just see, losing patience, just got his VL Commodore up off the side of the thing, drove straight through a soccer game. There was a soccer game going on just out the front of it. <laughs> see, this the parting of a sea as the VL Commodore went straight through the, uh, the, the soccer game to clear a path. So me and Ben just followed him behind him, of course. Um, but yeah, Jesse Foster to get yeah, into no. the '98 Grand Final on his VL corner straight through a soccer game was uh, one thing I'll never forget. He's a good character. Certainly heard both of those stories. I think he went through the tram track, didn't he? Is that how he got on? He did. He did. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. Dog leg through there, and then yeah, the, the soccer, the, the yeah, the soccer. Uh, they didn't know what was coming, but yeah, yeah there I think he was. There was another Just, one. Uh, um, was it when they used to run around Waddle Park, and Greg Reid used to win it every 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 year, and then. A young Jesse Foster rocked up, and he—I think there was a slab on it or something like that. It was. It was. It was a time trial for the double hill run, which meant you had to go the double roundabout, and yep. and it was every week there was a, there was a different challenge. And Greg Reed, being an ex-state junior runner, thought he was a pretty pretty shoe in, and uh, yep. yeah, he got pipped at the line by an under you know sixteen-year-old Jesse Foster Jesse to Foster. win the slab. Yep, yep. Loved a beer, loved a beer, and and to your point, like he he was god to us because like. He at sixteen, he beat all the state league one guys in a road yeah. race and had a slab that we could all drink. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah, he was. We we thought he was. We thought he was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you had some tough spots being a Campbell coaching against Campbell. So that let's roll forward to two thousand eleven. So there was a bit of controversy there where. Um, we had a player, Pat Ward, who, was, who hadn't told us what he was doing. He was actually playing down at Tassie, which meant he was actually an, an, an unregistered or he was sort of playing in two competitions and shouldn't have been doing that. And it sort of came to a head about two weeks out before the, the season. But 
You put you in a bit of a top. top. You guys were on top or around the top of the ladder. Uh, I I don't. I think we I think we missed the finals in 2011. We're sort of midway, so we weren't going to be playing finals that years, but we we certainly weren't anywhere near relegation. But it would it was going to mean that we were going to get relegated. So tell us through that time because Thames and Essendon were sort of got wind of this a bit earlier than that. Mm. And that put that put you in a pretty tough spot. What talk talk us through you, that um, <sighs> pinch of your. Yeah, I had to really think about this one, but um, it, we did get wind of it um, much earlier in the season. And um, I'm not going to name names in all of this, but I no, no. Being, being an ex-Camwell person, um, obviously it was indicated to me through Thames that they were going to fight it and they wanted to, you know, get Camwell relegated. Um, it wasn't something that I agreed with, um, but I let them fight their own battle. But what I did do was uh, make a phone call into Camwell to make sure that everyone knew what was going on. Now, that phone call, uh, I don't know what happened to it, but maybe I, I had my uh, phone on mute. But nothing was really done about it um, and carried on through the rest of the season. And then, obviously, it, it, it came to a head uh, a bit later on the season and the two clubs, I think Essendon and Thames, um, fought pretty hard to try and get Camwell relegated. and. Um, thankfully, uh, they didn't. Um, but it was a, it was pretty nasty there for a while, wasn't it? It really was. Yeah, I think yeah, certainly some friendships lost. I think um, I think you might have made a quick phone call into my dad at some point during the uh, during that window of time there. Mm. But um, yeah, it certainly and you know particularly with, on the Essendon side that Campbell Essendon had the sort of glory relationships through the fifties yeah. and sixties that pretty much got burnt through that. Um, so do you think in in Right decision not to have Campwell. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't want to see Campwell get rele- relegated at all. Um, and I'm glad it was. Well, how did it end? Did it? Was it through? Did it go legal or? It did look a little bit legal. Yeah. Uh, well, not the. Oh yeah, we had um, we had a good letter written by Richard yeah. Harris at the time. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, Declan. Declan, I sort of took the day off work and drafted a letter that got promptly got re- rewritten to something a lot more cohesive and direct. Yeah, he and not handled that very well, would he? Oh, look, yeah, we were a bit nervous. We were worried. but uh... <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, you, you look at the, the the amount of success that Campbell had in years to come and the plays that they produced. Imagine what would have happened if Campbell had have, um, gone down to State League 2. Um, players might have just start- dispersed and... Um, you know, I, I, personally, I love to see great teams, no matter who they are, um, playing and playing at the top level. So maybe I'm biased, but I think yeah, I think it was the right result in the end. I, look, I think you'll get a pretty sympathetic ear on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, when teams do a podcast, maybe I'll say something different. But uh... yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Until then. You're with yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it wasn't without controversy your time at Thames because you then switched to Powerhouse through a yes. you know, a pretty spectacular sort of scenario where the, the whole, you know, if it wasn't the whole team, it was certainly the majority of the team went from one club to the other, which, you know, to any club would, would really decimate a, a club. Yeah. Um, talk us through that and how did it happen and what was that like? Yeah, you, looking back on it, there was a bit of controversy in my coaching room at Thames, wasn't there? Uh, thanks for bringing that up. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, no, at the end of the season, um, we got called in, myself and Evan Jewell, um, who was the assistant coach at the at the time, um, and 
interestingly, about an hour prior to that, I was um, on the phone to Deckers because I was actually looking to get out of coaching um, for a while and concentrate on my, I guess, my my sports science career in the AFL. And I was frankly trying to get Deckers to to coach Thames, pull him across out of Camberwell. I think I rang him every year for about six years. Um, but, um, yeah, so we walked in and, and there was a new president and a new men's uh, men's secretary sitting at the table, which I hadn't seen before. I'd never met them. Um, and they told me that we'd finished our time and they believed that um, the culture that we were breeding at Thames was elitist um, and that, the club was going in a different direction. Um, the club was really driven by, for a long time, by Peter Bruckner and Craig Seckel. Um, they had serious ambitions and they did an incredible job through their juniors and uh, they wanted to see silverware at the highest level at Thames and, and they worked really, really, really hard, both through the juniors. Thames were, were not known as a junior club for a long time and they put a lot of effort into building that club up. And um, anyway, um, long story short, I was told I didn't have a job anymore and same with Evan and they were going in a different direction. So that was I was actually okay with it um, other than a bit of a hit to the ego, but that was okay. And um, I walked out of there and gave um, gave Peter a call and, um, and Craig and a few of the players just to let them know what was going on and they were pretty shattered. Um, but that was it, um, and I was comfortable with that. And then I knew that there was there was going to be an uproar with the playing group. They were, I knew they weren't going to be happy, and um, I didn't know to the extent what that they were going what they were going to do. But it was basically um, they they had had discussions with um, St Kilda Powerhouse about uh, potentially going across um, to join their club because they were so disappointed by the. Uh, the lack of communication around this. I, I think probably the one I didn't mention, there was some sort of um, secret annual general meeting where um, people were voted out and certain people were voted in. So, yeah, that, that all happened. And then um, towards the end of the year, around December, I was asked if I wanted to get involved at, at um, St Kilda Powerhouse to help the transition. Um, my answer to that was uh, no. I didn't really want to get involved, but um, it was it was more along the lines of helping the transition and 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 doing a, a little bit of work in the leadership space to try and uh, transition the the Thames players through into the powerhouse club, um, which is a very very um, uh, sensitive um, space because obviously powerhouse have worked really hard to get up into state league one. They'd just been promoted, um, and then we had these you know. 10 or 11 punks that were walking into their club expecting a game into State League One. So I initially got involved in the, you know, just that transition and then I sort of got, you know, I saw where this where the group was going and I decided to jump back into coaching um, and, and coach uh, Powerhouse uh, for a year. Uh, and I, I'd always said it was only going to be for a year. Um, it, I think it ended up being two, but um, it was um, – it was an amazing year. We ended up finishing on, on top of the ladder, so winning the home and away season on the last game of the season. I think Greensboro on top, they dropped a game, and we beat um, Mentone out there, and it was um, big scenes. Unfortunately, we went out in straight sets, but that was the first year that that group had, had played finals, and it was a it was a great year, and it, um, 
and the, the following year we were able to go into the finals as well. So um, it was, yeah, it was a it was a really interesting time. I guess from the outside, it would have looked um, really messy, um, but um, we certainly uh, ruffled a few feathers along the way. I think. What was it like having to manage those? You, you, you sort of alluded to it, but it's sort of quite. I mean, not obviously quite disturbing for Thames, but also you know quite disruptive to Powerhouse as well. To your point, that that sort of worked their way there, and then effectively have a, a team join. Um, how, how did that preseason go, and what did you try and do to try and integrate um, within a new club? The preseason, so that. Um... Uh, there was a couple of players, actually, luckily, that had played at Thames prior. There's a guy called Joel Hamilton, who you may know. Um, yep. Good little centre-half. Um, he he played most of his juniors at um, uh, Thames. And, and also the, the, the players knew of each other. A lot of the players knew of each other through the private schools because the, the powerhouse group, there's a lot of Wesley players and Melbourne Grammar players. So uh, there was a relationship already. Um, but... I guess the the first preseason, or I guess the, the the first time we joined there, my philosophy was to bond them together through hard work, um, and we certainly did a lot of that. We we um, we did a lot of running, um, a lot of cross training, not a huge amount of hockey early on. My my idea was that we were going to learn on the run, and I didn't expect much in the first half of the season. I thought we'd get spanked, and we did. Our first game, we lost nine one to Greensboro, which is Pretty amazing that we lost nine one to Greensboro and then ended up finishing on top of the ladder. But um, <laughs> that was that was what we went with, and we, we were going to learn, uh, I guess, each each other's hockey game along on the run um, through game to game. But I wanted to bring them together through a lot of a lot of hard work and um, a lot of punishment, and it and it and it did, and they're, they're still together to this day that group. Um, and I think I left them in a pretty good way, and. Um, Part of the, I guess the other thing that just came to mind was I got a lot of the old um, ex-powerhouse, really, really old guys who used to play in the, the A1 um, competition um, back in the day in the, I don't know, 70s. Yep. Um, Jack Manos, I think his name was George, his father, George Manos. He was a bit of a yes. legend of the club. So I got him to come down and talk to, more so aimed at the, the Thames guys, talk to the Thames guys about the history of the club and what it means to them. And he hadn't been down there for a long, long time. Um, Jerry Anastasio was part of the powerhouse group. Um, so they're all sort of, sort of little tricks that I, I used to ch- try and help bond the team together and have, I guess, a little bit more deeper meaning about the club rather than just walking in and, get playing um it, it attaches you to the club immediately and i probably got that a bit from my work at hawthorne with with um seeing the way that clarko would address his group and um extend the importance of of club and, and mateship very interesting i mean like we could do a whole podcast just on that uh that transition i think it's uh fascinating stuff really yeah you sort of touched on Clarko, and you, you know, let, let's talk a bit about your career because you've you've had um, a pretty amazing career, and um, I suppose hockey was a, a bridge a bridge for you for there, getting to meet Peter, and you sort of worked worked your way th- into uh, Olympic Park Sports Medicine uh, um, there for a while, and you worked with John Quinn and Andrew Russell, so a, a number of the you know quite well known names from a strength and conditioning point of yeah. view so talk talk through how you sort of 
your, your career got going and, and, and how you got your big break? Yeah, well, um, I didn't know the, uh, when Peter employed me as a coach at Thames, I sort of didn't really know his, how far his reach was. But um, during my time at Thames, he, he ended up getting a job as the head of sports science and sports medicine at Liverpool Football Club. And I thought, oof. He's he's pretty good at his uh his job and he knows uh he knows a few people. So um j- just before him getting that job, he he was doing a radio show with John Quinn, who's a legend of I guess the strength and conditioning world. He spent ten years at the Bombers and won a flag there, and also went up to the Giants up up there. And um so that was my initial I guess start into my working life and. He started his own business at Olympic Park Sports Medicine as an exercise physiologist, so end-stage rehab work. Um, and then, um, yeah, yeah, I got my exercise physiology accreditation. Meanwhile, yeah, working with, with Thames and um, and then it was 2012, um, Peter was at Liverpool, Peter Brookman was there, and I, I'd heard that Hawthorne had let go of... Um, Sorry, not let go. One of their one of their guys had got a promotion at another club, so I rang Peter and said, "Hey, Pete, do you know anyone from Hawthorne?" He said, uh, "Yep, yep, I know someone from Hawthorne. Uh, do you reckon you can give me his contact details? I've heard that there might be a position op- opening as a as a rehab coordinator at Hawthorne." He said, "Yeah, well, who do you, is it? Andrew Russell, you want to speak to?" I said, "Well, yeah, that's the high performance manager." He said, "All right, well, he's in my office right now in Liverpool." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, all right, okay." Um, well, can you put in a good word for me? So he did. Um, and Andrew was just literally by coincidence in the office um, visiting Liverpool to just, you know, fact find. Came back to Melbourne and gave me a buzz and I interviewed for the for the role at Hawthorne and, and ended up getting it. And Amazing. Little did I know, obviously. Well, I was a Hawthorne fan, as as you know. And, yes, um, yes. I didn't, certainly didn't know what was coming uh, over the next four or five years. So... My, uh, I guess my, um, I, I went grand final first year, sorry, prelim my first year and then grand final loss and then three grand final wins in a row. And I was thinking, geez, this footy game's pretty easy. Um, yeah. And then, um, yeah, then I, then I um, spent another year after those that three-peat and then popped across to, um, to Melbourne where I've, um, been the last three years, and again, that was another connection that Peter Brookner, my current um, manager, is um, was the, the head of fitness at, at Liverpool, who Peter introduced to me oh, eight, eight, eight or so years ago. So, again, um, you can do all the work you like at uni and all that sort of stuff, but it's the network that you create is, and the luck that you get along the way is what um, what certainly helped me out over the years. I think it's yeah. I mean, you look at. Um all sort of community-based clubs and, and that junior coaching. You'd, you never know who little Johnny's dad might be yep. or little Johnny's yep. mum might be and, and you know, that, that network that you get through coaching can be a, a really powerful uh, a powerful thing for not only for your sporting aspirations but also for your, for your career as well. Yeah, I, I guess touching – I, I wouldn't mind touching on that. And, 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 again, this has been a bit of a, a philosophy of mine over the years that I've coached is that I, I – at Camberwell, it was it was almost a badge that you that you got when you coached a team when you were an eighteen or nineteen year old. Um, it was it was looked upon as a really good thing, but but also everyone had to do it, and it, it wasn't yeah. necessarily necessarily a had. 
a lot of people wanted to do it because mm. you know I was coached by you guys when I was growing coming through the ranks and um, it's a it's a generational thing and 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 what it does is create a, a great community environment by introducing the coach to the parents and the parents to the senior club and so on. But when I left Camwell and went to Thames, it was non-existent. Um, so it was certainly something that everywhere I've gone, whether it's um, Thames, um, Powerhouse or Footscray, I've pushed really hard and it's a really difficult task to get um, these sort of young 18, 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds to coach a junior side. And it's something that Camwell has done really well um, and it's I guess it's probably ingrained a bit at the club but but the the positive effects of it are, are enormous yeah I, I couldn't agree more that 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 giving back so that's not all about you is is important but the I think the trick with it is you, you get a lot more of it than you get still get more out of it than a little bit you put in I think no um, yeah even just just as a as a player when you're a junior player or a young player just having to describe and articulate a skill to a, a younger person yeah. means you've got to think about your game just that Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So much so much upside to it. So you've you've worked with some pretty amazing amazing people. Who 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 would you say is sort of who would you be the sort of core out people that has really shaped you and uh, influenced you um, in your career? Um from a coaching perspective from the from the from the hockey side John Mowat, someone who I've I've spent um, a fair bit of time with, and until uh, and still um, give him a buzz every now and then. Um, he's someone that I worked with in the state system, um, and and um, from a professional side of things, uh, I did I did spend a little bit of time with with Mike Craig as well. Um, he he spoke in riddles a lot of the time, and it, it's <laughs> probably 10, 15 years down the track. I understood what he, exactly what he was talking about, but that's probably shows you my level of intelligence. But it took me ten or fifteen years to work it out. But I did. I ended up working it out. Um, from a from a professional side of things, Andrew Russell was um, huge in my development. He was my my high performance manager um, at Hawthorne. Um, he's also done a, a psychology degree, and his ability to uh, mould and influence a group. Um, you know, both, uh, I guess, live, uh, he can, he can, um, he can direct a group within minutes, um, in any direction. Um, but also his, his ability to build relationships is, is, is unbelievable. Um, Clarko, n- not necessarily, he's not a, a mentor as, as such. I won't, I, I don't ring him or anything like that, but just watching him coach over the years is, um, um, he is a genius. He is an absolute genius. His storytelling ability is unbelievable. Um, he will come up with uh, different ways to poke and prod his his team from week to week. And you can imagine how many different themes he would have had over the even just the the three years of you know you got twenty two games in a season. That's sixty six plus four or five finals a year. He had a theme every week, um, and. You know the, the amount of work that he put into that side of it was unbelievable, and, and also he's he he really is a manager, and I got a lot out of that. And that part of my early development, just you know, you got to step back and you got to let people learn. Um, that's a, a lot of Clarko stuff. Um, and then 
uh, yeah, Darren Burgess has been part of my professional life over the last 18, 18 months and um, watching and learning from him and he's he's one who sort of drives human performance and, and, and drives his athletes to understand that they're capable of a lot more than what they think. Um, I guess that's part of his – he's quite an aggressive practitioner. So he's another one that's um, had a fair influence on me of recent times. And look, you sort of went, you sort of touched on it before. You went through that really successful year at Hawthorne with a three peat and obviously four grand finals, and and part of that was Hawthorne's ability to to recycle players that may have been discarded through injury and stuff. And being a, a rehab coordinator, you, you would have seen firsthand or had a hand in what what made Hawthorne so successful at, at, at getting the best out of players that you, you look at people like Sean Burgon and these sort of people that came with not insignificant injuries, um, but, you know, have gone on to play yeah, uh, incredibly well since then. What what, what, what was the secret to this, that sort of success? Um, well, Sean Burgon, that's a, it's an amazing story. I think he came to the footy club around 27 years of age and Port laughed at Hawthorne because to them, his career was over. His knee injury was, um, he had a, a significant, what's called a condyle lesion. So he basically call out the start of arthritis. Um, uh, so first of all, the confidence and ability for, this is pr- prior to my time with Sean, but this is, this will give you a good insight as to what made them so successful was, um, the ability and, and strength of the, of the medical and performance team to say, yes, we'll get it right. Um, but also, the trust that Clarko had had with Andrew Russell and Andrew Lambert, the head physio, and Michael McDesey, their doctor, to get him right. And and if it meant that it would take eighteen months, then it's going to take eighteen months. Hmm. Um, at a lot of footy clubs, there's probably, especially these days, there's less patience around those type of injuries because obviously these guys are on a lot of a lot of money and they want the most out of every player as soon as possible. Hmm. So. Um, so a long-winded answer, but the, the medical team is and the and the, the high performance manager um, were instrumental in in my learnings. I, I came in there very raw, and I came out of Hawthorne with an incredible uh, level of experience, having rehabbed alongside Andrew Russell. He, you know, I've done Cyril's hamstrings, I've done plenty of knees, and. Um, obviously, Sean Burgoyne's, it's a lot of management of, of players on individual programs. Um, but that's that's been all part of my journey and how lucky I have been to have, to, to have experienced those sort of things. Pretty crazy stuff. They're, they're pretty important hamstrings, those serials ones. That was a big responsibility you had there for a long period of time. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so you've been at a lot of clubs. Like you've, 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 You're now at Melbourne. You've been at... Hawthorne, you've had some time at Footscray and and we touched on the Thames and Powerhouse and your time at Campbell. So you've seen a lot of different organisations at different levels. But what would you say the, the, the common themes that make um, a successful culture in a sporting yeah, context? Yeah, I, I get this one a lot. And, um, and I've obviously been through, uh, you know, some successful ones and some not so successful ones. And the first thing is, is um, is continuity within your organisation. So if you hire the right people and you get the right people in, um, they get, you, you want to keep them and they're going to stay if you treat them the right way. So I guess that's the first thing. During my Hawthorne time, there was um, 
very, very little movement in and out of our performance medical and coaching team. There was coaches that obviously went and got um, head coaching roles. But we all, what we also see is when those coaches finish up, they go back to Hawthorne. Um, so it's a place that you really want to be and it's an in, and you create it's the ability to create an, an environment that's really challenging. Um, first and foremost, a challenging environment for, for the players, but also a really fun environment. And that's that's what was able to – and, and you know, obviously, you throw in talent. You can't dismiss that. Plenty of talent. Um, and, and I mean, no matter what you – you know, if we had have recreated the, the same environment at Thames Hockey Club as far as, you know, the, the coaching – and the environment and the culture, we still would have probably finished last. So you can't underestimate the level of talent, but what you what you can do about that talent is foster it and making sure that that talent hangs around. Um, and that, that's, that's through that really successful period, there could have been uh, 10, 15 players that could have gone on to other clubs um, and, and demanded more money. But due to the fact that, they knew that they were getting well looked after at Hawthorne as far as a medical and performance side of things. Um, so you talk about the environment there. Um, they wanted to stay and they wanted to have success with their, their mates. Um, so that, 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 that's got, I mean, and, and then you roll on through the, I guess you take it through the hockey channels and each club that I've coached hasn't been at the top end of the ladder when I've, when I've taken over. But each club that I've gone Two, um, one of the most important priorities, especially I guess the Footscray um, side, um, was to, to bring the group together as far as um, individuals coming from very different demographics and different parts of the world and, and gelling them together and respecting each other enough to, um, to, to one, hang around and, and keep playing with each other, um, but also to try and have some success. Um, and and they're they're the organisations that are they're going to be successful. The culture, the cultural side of it. And from a professional standpoint, I don't know if Campbell has values written on a wall or anything like that. They they would be in every single AFL club around the land. Hawthorne lived and died by their values that were written on the wall. Whereas, I guess um, currently where I'm at, we've got a lot of work to do in that space as far as our leaders first and foremost living the values which will then filter down through to the playing group and the rest of the club. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. You see that you see the value statements in business and I've certainly been lucky enough in where I work currently that the difference is every every business has got them. It's just a question of whether you live them or not. And if you walk the walk, you gotta talk if you're gonna talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk. And I, you know, people smell a phony pretty quickly. So I think it's yeah. It, 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 yeah, in any in any um domain it's it's those values are, are really key and it's it's one thing to have them on the glossy brochure but it's another thing to actually actually do them so um, yeah and i think yeah. you just find that if those values aren't lived then the, the turnover of people within that organization is high is high um, because they know that um it, it's not being done so i'll find another place to go to um and and usually what you see is the leaders that get uh, within that organization get looked after as far as uh remuneration or or you know perks of the job or just just generally um and and the leaders will tend to stay within those organizations of 
mm. uh, that aren't living the values, but everyone underneath them tends to sort of just roll through. 2020, it's been a pretty disruptive year for everyone and I, I suppose for yourself you've, you've probably had sort of a pretty bizarre year. If I had a said to you this time last year, this year was going to be a year you probably would have laughed. But from a from your profession, you know, you, you've gone from sort of a very different season, you know, typically a season's very structured, there's a pre-season, there's the pre-season cup, then you get into the home and away, and then you, if you're lucky enough to get to a final sort of block. And so I would imagine you have a pretty structured um, flow of what you're trying to do with your with the team as, as you progress through those stages of a season. COVID hits, season stops midway, in de- unsure when it's going to start, very short ramp back up, and then, you know, the potential of having many more games in a much more compressed time frame than, you know, the AFL system's used to. Talk us through 2020 from what's been different and how you guys have had to adapt in terms of how you would normally um, get a team ready to play, yeah, it's it's been a yeah it's been a crazy year. Um, from a from my I guess my first and foremost my um, my a lot of my colleagues have lost their jobs, which is which is mm. not any different to any other industry. Um, there's been a lot of pay cuts and and so on. Um, they're, they're all those things have mostly happened recently, but um, when this is one of the Darren Burgess. Um, uh, references when Burjo took over uh, in uh, October last year he's come from uh, he was most recently at Arsenal Football Club and as you would know uh, in the Premier League they play on a Saturday and then they might play on a Tuesday and then they may even play on a Thursday they mm. might they might be flying into Europe somewhere to play and then come back so th- this is this is all part of the, the Darren Burgess philosophy in that it, our athletes um, are capable of a lot more than what they think. Yes, our game of AFL, there are a lot more collisions and hits and corkies, no doubt. But essentially, uh, a lot of the injuries don't come from uh, hits and things. They're soft tissue injuries. So what we went about doing early on, prior, way prior to COVID hitting, was um, start working on the, the player's mental game as far as you are capable of more and also physically training them a lot harder, back-to-back days, um, which is sometimes seen as taboo within the AFL, um, and just really driving their their resilience, um, not allowing them to get into an ice bath. So their bodies are going through periods of um, uh, high stress and, and, and then learning to deal with that. So that just so happened that COVID hit and we were re- really well prepared. Um, mm. So... Um, COVID came along, we played round one um, and then we had a six-week break, uh, which we kept the players. A lot of, a lot of clubs took, gave, took the foot off the pedal as far as their training load goes. We went harder um, and we got them back in seriously good nick with, with very low injury rates um, and we, we carried out the season. I think, I think we were, I don't know this for sure, but we were, we were ranked on top as far as Injury status goes, we missed out on the finals, um, but we certainly uh, we finished the season with with plenty of fle- fresh legs as well. So um, 
we were throwing a lot of curveball, curveballs as far as fixturing and, um, you know, we had to change our training base from in at Amy Park in the city to drive me out to Casey. But a lot of the, I guess, a lot of the mental side of uh, the year was based around throw what you like at us. Uh, we're going to deal with it. Um, mm. So that helped us. Um, and that was not knowing, I guess, necessarily, we didn't know that COVID was going to hit, but there's a lot of curveballs thrown in a normal AFL season. So um, this was just another one. Um, so that, that gives you an idea of what we, how we got through through the year. Um, um, and, you know, just things like travel and things like that. Everyone's got to travel. We've just got to do it. The only mm. thing that was we, we probably some of the families in the hub up in Queensland struggle with was the, I guess, the having the families up there, um, partners working full-time, not having the ability to care for kids, that side of thing was probably the bit that we didn't see coming. <laughs> it's, yeah, it, I mean, homeschool. That, that week between, I think, um, school going back and school holidays was a week that we shall never speak of again, I think. Um, <laughs> oh. So... How does it change? Like, so you get into a bit of a rhythm of a season. So you know, you see a lot in the media about six day break, five day break, and you know, a season has a has a has a bit of a, a rhythm. You guys were dealing with one or two day breaks. So what, what's 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 fundamentally different to how you would approach the you know a two three day turnaround versus say a six or seven day break that you'd be accustomed to? Yeah, well, you're, you're always going to have um, if you call it game plus one, which is the day after the game, you're always going to have that day off to regenerate and recover. Um, that that's essential, um, and that's a non-negotiable. Um, but then, uh, during a six-day break, you would ease into the week. Um, game plus two, so do two days past the game. Um, you might get them in for a a flush type run, which is just an easy uh, on legs running around some cone, having a light kick of the footy, probably a four k session. Um, mm-hmm. And then that would be a um, the next day would be more of an education day. This is on a seven-day, six, seven-day break um, with a bit of strength work and then um, there would be a main training session on uh, game plus four. Um, whereas, whereas you're talking about a three-day turnaround, basically all you do is have that day off, game plus one, um, and then you'd have a flush slash um, uh, tactical training session where you, they get a, a lot of coach um uh, driven uh, walkthroughs type things and a, a heavy coach type session rather than a heavy physiology movement type session. Um, and then they roll into to playing. Um, usually what you have in a, a seven-day break is a what's called a captain's run, which is the day before the game where they um, they, they come in and, and do a sort of a 3K, 3K kick and run and um, different, different types of uh, – um, game situation type drills, um, and then and then play the following day. So, again, mm. we we made barely anything of it during the COVID this two thousand and twenty season. It, it was mm. just that 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 it is what it is. We get on with it. The other team's doing it now. You know there are this. We beat Collingwood off um, a Perth travel uh, three day break, and they got three injuries during the game. You can't do anything about that. Um, as far as Collingwood's concerned, um, there's always circumstances that you can't change. But from a mindset point of view, 
you've you've got to do it. So let's do it. When yeah, so let's let's talk a bit more about strength and conditioning for for hockey. So you, when you sort of joined our team, you you were sort of you know getting introduced to the old school run three laps of the tan flat out six shuttles before hockey, maybe some hill sprints afterwards, and just repeat week week in week out, right? Things have changed a little bit since then. Um, what, what do you see elite hockey players need to sort of be able to physically do as, as the game is today, um, to, you know, to achieve what you would – because, yeah, to your point, talent, yeah. you still need talent, but you still need to have the the, the fundamentals from a uh, an anaerobic and aerobic sort of capacity. Yeah. What, what do you need to focus as an elite hockey player these days? Well, ultimately, all you want to do as a strength and conditioning coach is – for, you want to prepare your athletes to deal with the, their given sport. You hear a lot of strength and go, oh, you'll be the best, I'll, be, I'll make the best you can be. No, no, what you actually want them to do is complete 22 games plus finals. So you need to, um, and, and, and do it well, but you need to firstly have in mind what, what are the common injuries that, are, um, that you're dealing with within the sport um, and how do you condition the players up so that they can deal with those those injuries um, from a strength perspective, but also from a conditioning perspective as well. So um, from a performance standpoint, obviously hockey compared to footy is on a very small space. So top speed rarely ever gets hit. Um, There's a lot of lateral movement. There's a lot of forward and back movement, whereas footy is a bit more, I guess, predictable. So you're able to turn your body and, and move to a contest the in tight stuff is, you know, less predictable. But then you can once it opens out, uh, you get a few more players that probably hit top speed. From a hockey side of things, you you really need to be able to repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, so having an extremely good aerobic base, so that from contest to contest and movement to movement, you can recover quickly. But then also lay it on top of that, there needs to be a lot of short sharp um, conditioning to be done. When you're talking about reintroduction from the break that most hockey players have had in Victoria, mm. I'd certainly be focusing on um, groins, um, no doubt. Obviously, hamstrings is a big one. Um, and, oh, well, I don't know if there's still – is there still hip injuries in hockey, Mish? Look, I never had one, but I'm sure that the drag flickers the drag are still flickers complaining still about hips. Yeah, yep. yeah. But, but, I mean, the, the common injuries are a big one. And then once they've got a really good strength base, you can you can be working on your aerobic conditioning whilst doing that. And then you just layer on top of that more intensity work, repeat work, um, a lot of lateral change of direction, agility stuff. Um, so, that I mean, that's, that's, that's fundamentally what the game is based on. Uh, I haven't – I must admit, apart from my coaching days where I – I would commonly employ a conditioning coach because my voice would get heard too many times. I haven't mm. done heaps of um, specific, you know, elite level hockey conditioning. So, um, mm-hmm. but it's you, where, wherever you go from sport to sport, that you've got to have your your fundamental um, movement patterns and injuries that you need to look after, and then performance comes on top of that. You, you know enough to be dangerous though in this this field, in, in, even in hockey. So with there's like prehab and rehab. There's always that sort of boring exercises that you sort of have to do. What what should every hockey player have in their exercise diet of just some of those things you just need to do to make sure that you avoid injuries 
to your point, back, hip injuries and, and yeah. sort of soft tissues like hamstring. What are some key ones that you should just have in your diet as a, as a religion? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm a big Nordic hamstring man. So yep. um, that's that's like a, an exercise. Google it if you want to. Um, uh, it's a it's an eccentric ha- exercise of the hamstrings. Um, it, it's it's a really great way to um, condition the hamstrings to perform in the um, in the important running phase, uh, running gait phase, if you like. Um, so that's that's a big one for me. No matter what sport, if there's intensity within the sport, get your Nordics done. Mm-hmm. Um, I would certainly, as a hockey player, have a mini band in my hockey bag wherever I went, um, mm-hmm. and make sure I perform plenty of exercises around the hips. Um, and then on top of that, um, some plenty like of clams, that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, clams, but also you know your your, your lateral um, I don't know what, they, what they call them. Most people call them mini band lateral walks or oh yeah, um, side to side sort of stuff. Yep. 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 And you can go in multi directions with the mini band around your knees. It doesn't matter where you where you put it. Mm-hmm. You're you're always going to be conditioning your hip. And no matter what you do, you I don't know what what it is, but you just can't get better at it. You're always going to put your your glute med or your whole glute complex under fatigue. Um, and that's gold. Um, from a pre- preparation pre game point of view, it's always good to fire them up pre game. Um, mm-hmm. I really like a skipping rope in your bag. Um, what you'll see, I've always um, thought about this, but you see, Miss, you're a big component, the biggest one of the biggest components of this. Hockey players have big calves, and uh, <laughs> you've got, you got a couple of shearings down down your lower leg. But um, the reason why they've got big calves is because it's such an in close game. Um, and um, you look at if you look at the sort of prototype of footballers. Most of the the players at, at uh, either ends of the ground, are, are, their calves aren't really. This is only an, a, a, an observation of myself. They don't have big calves, but usually the midfielders and the ruckmen have big calves. Um, so it's all that in close movement that they do. Um, so in the off season, a skipping ropes are really important part of your preparation, uh, just to keep the the lower leg complex moving, foot, ankle. Um, making sure that you've got plenty of elastic energy through your through your ankle. So yeah, they're, yeah. The, they're the sort of sort of the big ones for me. Um, they're the big rocks that I'd be hitting as a hockey player. And as you know, the strength of the club is is certainly in its veteran ranks. And <laughs> what are the secrets to success for just having that longevity? That's one of the beauties of hockey. You can I think Dad'll probably die with a hockey stick in his hand. But uh, what's what's the secret to just playing into the well, look, let's face it, we're both in that demographic now, Phil. What's the, uh, what's the secret? Well, um, as you know, yeah, long long retired now. I've, I've just put a recent screw in my big toe from uh, my one return of uh, veterans hockey. but So I, I can't really talk to that. But um, Just do as I say, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, But the secret, I mean, it's the same as running, really. I, I mean, I, I learned to be a good runner, as you know, Mish, through, through hard work, and I ended up loving running. Um, and then... Obviously, I couldn't do that after my hip injury. And every time I – no, I don't try anymore. But every time I go for a trot, I just – I it, it's literally every step that I take um, is a hard one. Um, and hockey is pretty similar. If, you know, you, you want to continually – if you want to be – if you want to die with a hockey stick in your hand, you've got to continually play it because I think the more you, you step away from the game, the harder it is to get back into it. And running is the same. 
Um, once you, you know, if you haven't got a consistent training load of running, you're more than likely going to get injured when you come back into it. Um, so, you know, that's the secret, but the secret of it all is enjoying it. And that's what your old man Enjoy does, it. that's for sure. Yeah. 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 I reckon he's better now at 70 than he was when he was at uh, 37, I think, yeah. for sure. Yeah. He's, yeah. He goes right. Yeah. All right. Well, well, Phil, thanks very much for talking to us. We'll, we'll yeah, just close right. with a couple of quick, quick, quick questions. Before just you do, like, before you do, yeah. I just wanted to say how good this medium is that you guys have created. It's, um, I listened to the Trav Brooks one um, the other day. Oh, yeah. Oh, to, I, I started getting hairs on the back of my neck. I was going to re and say, hey, mate, any chance you could slot me in this year in the uh, <laughs> the Burt Batch Trophy? Um, but, it, it, you know, it's a great podcast. Listen to all the different people. As we touched on, there's a incredible network of people at every hockey club and every sporting club, and learning about all these uh, different people is, is brilliant. So well done, guys. Yeah, no, it has been great. It's been, uh, I'm sure it's something we're going to continue to do going forward because, as you say, it's uh, it's it's been awesome. All right, now let's see some hard questions. Be honest okay. and quick and fast, right? Yep. Okay, sporting, your your sporting hero. Uh David Wansborough. Beep test or yo-yo test? Beep. John Nalen. <laughs> oh, you want me to say something? <laughs> John Nalen is in- angry. Well, I was going to say angry, and uh, Dennis Pagan's horse was, I think, called Johnny Got Angry. I've already spoken to him about that, but, yeah, angry. We'll <laughs> go with angry. All right. Compression wear, is it an advantage or just aesthetic? Uh, advantage, to go a little bit further, more so aimed at recovery and um, travel on planes. Okay, okay. Stretching before exercise, should do, don't do? Stretch lightly. Stretch lightly. Your best sporting moment? Uh, three goals in the All-Ireland final, got in the paper the next day. Thank you very much. A- Andy Lee's running style? He's on a treadmill. <laughs> best hockey player you've ever seen? I think you might have answered this. Yeah, already answered it. Ja- uh, uh, Wonsie? Sports drink or water? Water. Water. Richie Callahan. Energy. Bicep curls? Essential. <laughs> And with that, I'm off to the gym. (laughs) Thanks very much, Phil. No dramas. Good to speak to you, Mish. Look forward to coming down to Matlock soon. You've been listening to the Camberwell Hockey Podcast. We'd like to send a big thank you to our hosting team, our guests, and you, the listener, for your support. If you enjoy the show, please give us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is recorded and produced by Camberwell Hockey Club in Melbourne, Australia. If you have any feedback, comments or questions, please find us on Twitter at Camberwell underscore HC or see more information on our website, camberwell.hockey. See you next week.